Welcome to the NICE podcast. My name's Kate. And I'm Ben. And you're listening to the Newcastle Intensive Care Education Podcast. We're recording on a Wobbicle country in beautiful New South Wales, Australia. Welcome. So when Jeremy invited me to this event, I, I was genuinely excited to be in the audience for a meeting like what I just heard about, let alone to speak at it. I think purposely taking ourselves away from our clinical environment to reflect on these important non-clinical topics is as critical as anything else we do in critical care, whether you are a trainee or even a fully-fledged intensivist. More than that, many of you guys are in that period of your career where a lot happens. Things move fast and things outside work can also be rather hectic. It seems even global pandemics turn up when you're training. It can seem hard not to get swept up in a series of clinical, teaching and exam encounters and not to be sure where it's all heading next. So I get the opportunity today to tell my story, one of the oldest and most important ways we human beings have supported and inspired each other on this planet. And I hope you hear some things today that will help you in your transition to whatever the next phase is for you. So please bear with me as I'm going to go back to primary school where I was first diagnosed with Wolf-Parkinson-White syndrome. I developed episodes of SVT, mostly during sport, and I would have palpitations, dizziness, and sometimes these frightening faints and blackouts. Now, having a heart condition into your teenage years is has you at very many doctor's appointments and eventually in a hospital having a, an open heart surgical ablation, which was thankfully very curative. And the experience and, the, and, the, and as well as that, the reasonable marks I was getting in the sciences at high school had my mother regularly telling me, I think you should be a doctor, Andrew. The cardiologists and the other specialists that I was seeing all did seem to have pretty cool jobs. So after year 12, I selected medicine and snuck in. Last mark you could get in on. I scraped through medicine and enjoyed all my terms as an intern. And so I genuinely had no idea what I should do next. One day, my medical registrar rang me up out of the blue, the med reg from the previous term, and she said to me, I, th I think you'd make a good physician. And by the way, applications for basic medical training close tomorrow. So I thought I'd better reply. And despite saying little at the interview other than I preferred solving medical problems than holding retractors, I, I somehow got in. Now, when I failed the FRCP first part exam and was turned down for advanced training in cardiology, which had been my preference at that stage, a friend told me there was a, a, a vacant job in ICU as a registrar. And I applied, and again, I got in. ICU, in those days, it was easy to get an ICU registrar job. And I found ICU interesting, diverse, and exciting. And the bosses were such great human beings that I was hooked. And I passed the physician exam the next time around, proceeded with ICU training, and when I was in my final year in Adelaide, the ICU director there pointed out there was an ad for a consultant job at the Alfred in my hometown of Melbourne. I tossed my hat in the ring and I got that job too. <laughs> then beginning as a consultant, a significant mentor told me I might help a few hundred patients a year as a clinician, but as a clinical researcher, I might impact the lives of tens or hundreds of thousands of patients globally. So I started my first research project. Do you see the pattern? At reasonably important life junctures, I usually followed the suggestion of another person I respected 
rarely analysing these, uh, these decisions in any depth. My career progressed though, and ICU was hard, but it was fun. And despite being an introvert, I really loved those human connection side of things. The, the stuff with patients, their families, my colleagues, and, and other teams. Then as a younger consultant, the ANZUS Clinical Trials Group was starting up. And this seemed like a great opportunity to learn more about research and to be part of a larger collaborative effort, something that's gone on amazingly over the last 25 years. So I threw myself into this, realizing that my research output would increase the, the more I put in. I was invited to the management committees of some of the clinical trials group's important studies. Then I became a principal investigator of some of the studies. I started being invited to speak at national conferences, then international conferences. I became deputy director of my ICU, then I became an associate professor. I joined the hospital research ethics committee and every other committee I thought would help my research career. I joined the ANZICS clinical trials group executive. I became an associate editor for a journal. I wrote papers, protocols and grant applications and I reviewed papers, protocols and grant applications. Things were piling up pretty well by now so there was little time for my wife and our two young daughters. I saw few friends outside the hospital, had no hobbies, and my only passion outside of work was watching sport on TV. Not exercising my body, but watching other people exercise theirs. Can you see where this was heading? More responsibilities, a finger in every pie. I still enjoyed ICU clinical work, but I'd rush back to the research office as soon as I could. Anyone who told me I was overcommitted got the silent treatment. Anyone who said I seemed stressed was just laughed off. And I totally ignored my wife, who tried to warn me many times. To me, this was the perfect life, a job at one of the best tertiary hospitals in Australia, a loving wife and two daughters, an income to allow us to have anything we ever needed, and on a path to becoming chair of the clinical trials group and a full professor. What more could I ask for? Well, eventually, 11 years ago, it all came crashing down. What happened is deeply personal. There's a fair bit of shame in it too. You see, my way of coping with this seemingly mind-boggling large array of tasks, of responsibilities and piles on my desk, as my academic productivity started to stall, my anxiety skyrocketed and I drifted from my family, was to start self-soothing behaviour. Now, whilst others choose alcohol or drugs or gambling or misappropriation of funds or even an overzealous need for expensive toys, I chose to use the internet to try and initiate an intimate relationship that disrespected professional boundaries. I didn't break the law, but my actions were far from what is expected of a senior specialist medical practitioner. When they were brought to the attention of my employer, I was forced to realise what a job-threatening mess I had created myself. So as hard as it was, and through gritted teeth, I resigned from both my clinical and academic roles. And being out of work, in a psychological mess is a very lonely place. I can still remember waking up in the morning with this most instantaneous and visceral feeling, part shame, part guilt, hating what I'd done and worried that I'd thrown it all away. Bruised and battered, fearful and frustrated, I sat in the rubble, unsure if my career and my marriage would continue. I actually hadn't let a patient or their relatives down in my clinical skills or my clinical duties, but still I had met each of the three key features of burnout, overwhelming exhaustion, feelings of cynicism and detachment from the job, and a sense of ineffectiveness and lack of accomplishment. 
without even thinking I might have been stressed or burning out, my response was escapist and self-soothing behaviour, which was totally unprofessional. I had let down my family, colleagues, research team and myself. Now that first year was tough. My wife Claire is indeed an angel. She compassionately dug deep and supported me. I'm sure I wouldn't be standing here today without her. Some special friends took me for walks, talks and those coffee chats you need. I started having early nights as I grasped the reality of pretty much two decades of sleep deprivation. I began eating for health rather than comfort. I started running again as I saw the value of moving my body. I took some surfing lessons, locking my phone in the car and placing myself at the mercy of nature. That was great. And I found my old guitar in the attic and started banging out some rough tunes, at least when nobody was home. These lifestyle changes came easily and almost naturally somehow. It was like the cure was in front of me. But on the other hand, the inner work was way, way harder. A psychologist spent many hours with me unraveling the ball of stress and anxiety I'd become. I started meditating, so simple, yet not easy and with profound effects. I started writing in a journal and I started reading books rather than scientific journals. And I devoured anything that seemed like an authentic way to boost my personal development. Slowly, I recognised how self-focused I'd become and how much I needed a balanced, purposeful and more filling, fulfilling life. I began to rebuild what I'd let slip at home with Claire and my daughters, recognising particularly how much Claire had sacrificed for me to work as much as I had. Eventually, after almost two years, I resumed clinical work in a different ICU at Frankston Hospital where I work now. And for most of the last decade, I've kept thinking about what happened. Essentially, I was an achievement addict. Accolades and accomplishments, especially professional ones, had become the currency of what I was trying to accumulate. I was using academic credibility to buy self-esteem. I had a desire to be noticed, a deep and long-standing need to be appreciated, perhaps even simply to be loved. Achievement and addiction is often driven by people-pleasing, or at least worrying about the opinions of others. I was thinking, I will only be good enough if I do things that other people value. My parents, my peers, what I thought society expected of me, what others might think or say about me. Now, people-pleasing is primal, and as I can understand it, it's driven more by our fear of rejection than actually our desire to be admired. We clearly seek connection, really to belong, but this is mostly because in prehistoric times, rejection by the tribe uh, was going to force us to be alone and therefore almost certainly to die. So impressing people as a demonstration of our ability to collaborate is what our ancestors did, and this drives healthy ambition in us now in these days. But I'd let people-pleasing turn ambition into a pathological desire to achieve, which was essentially all ego, and I therefore placed myself at the beck and call of those wild and buffeting forces of external validation rather than the more tranquil inner derived wisdom. It also meant I was in a performance role. I was trying to play the part on the stage of a high achieving academic. Sure, I did contribute to and help lead a decent number of valuable intensive care research projects, but quite a lot of that was actually about me. I constantly tried to polish my CV by accumulating more CV points to be ready for any career advancement possibilities all while thinking I was in the perfect job. If that's not insanity, it's surely madness. Because it was all about achievement, I said yes to everything at work. 
And I said, hell yes to anything that might put another notch on my belt. And when we say yes to one thing, we say no to so many other things. I was blind to fact the fact that all those academic year, yeses were actually saying no to things like exercise, sleep, hobbies, and even the nourishment of having nothing to do. I was saying no to spending time developing optimal relationships with my wife and children. I was saying no to, to pretty much having any friends. And I quickly discovered that when you leave your workplace, many of your colleagues are not actually real friends. I was saying no to taking holidays rather than using all my leave for conferences. I never even considered I could work part-time as I do now. The worst bit is I have no idea what started at all. It almost feels like my parents sat me in the car to drive to preschool. Then I got back in the passenger seat on what became a long drive across the country through various towns of primary school, high school, medical school, physician training, ICU training, and first consultant job. I didn't look at which road we were taking, let alone at a map, and every so often there'd be a new person in the driver's seat, usually someone I respected. The latter part of the drive seems this blur of clinical and non-clinical activity, mostly academic, before suddenly the car drove off the road and into a huge ditch. Now, my story is not the normal one in intensive care. Many consultants are much more focused on their direction. I'm not here to criticise academics either. You likely know intensivists who are far higher, higher achieving in research than even I was. I know many too. Most are very good at fitting everything in, managing the stress and not getting too caught up in the accolades. And there will be many of you in this room who have thrown yourself at intensive care training as you almost have to do with the same fervour and less attention to your overall direction than you might like. And that's okay. Furthermore, not all of this was bad. If not for the nudging this whole series of experiences provided, I may not have found intensive care, which has provided me with the privilege of caring for people at a critical life juncture and witnessing the intensely human relationships around them. Moreover, we learn more from how we respond than from what happened to us in the first place. And I'd like to hope that I've evolved as a human being because of this midlife crisis. But I sometimes wonder what 10-year-old Andrew might have said if he knew what was gonna play out over the subsequent decades. Was this the very best use of more than half his life? He'd forgive the odd mistake or failure, that helps us to grow. But if he'd known I would keep repeating the pattern of letting other people's opinions guide me for so long that all I cared about was achieving, Surely he would have slapped me across the face for wasting the opportunity our short lives present us with. Ten-year-old Andrew might also wonder why I didn't put more effort into meditating on my purpose and what the best version of me might look like. A guy whose podcast I love listening to, Michael Gervais, an American high-performance psychologist, talks of the distinction between purpose-driven and performance-driven behaviour. As I had been doing, the more we try to please people, the more we become performance-driven. We focus on results and not letting people down. It's so common, even among elite sports performers. But if we can drop other people's expectations and do the inner work of clarifying our true purpose, we often function better and feel more fulfilled and the achievements become more of a side effect than the main event. When I started in ICU, I saw my purpose as helping ICU patients and their families. Yet the performance-driven behaviour took over as the research career progressed. Over the last 10 years, as I've clarified my purpose, it's returned to patients and their families. I aim to connect with my patients and their families as deeply as possible. And I've added the intention to help ICU clinicians to bring their best selves to work, which I do through podcasting and speaking like this. I work part-time 
I've dropped the research and my family and my well-being rank as highly as anything I do in the ICU. It's a big work in progress. I'm making better choices, but there are ups and downs. Recovery is never linear, neither is life, and new challenges constantly emerge. But I'm in front of you now, and I hope this cautionary tale can help you reflect on your general direction. I feel for those of you in training, as it seems much harder to get through training and then find a job than it was when I came through. And the list of things you need to tick off to complete your training, training has grown immeasurably. We are all terribly busy. I'm not unique in piling on the workload. That wasn't the issue. It was the why behind the work. It doesn't matter whether your workload is driven by seeing patients or whether it's an interest away from direct patient care like research, education, convening conferences, administration, examining or working on committees for the college, supervising trainees, mentoring, retrieval, ultrasound, ECMO, whatever, even wellbeing advocacy, you need to be clear about your direction. Now to finish off, I wanna share some thoughts on how I have worked on being clear about this direction. Meditation, as I said, or mindfulness has been a big part. Many of you may meditate already, and most of you will have been exposed to it at least. Placing my attention on my breath and other body sensations is where it started for me. My psychologist literally suggested I take three deep breaths and focus on them. How hard's that? As this extended to five minutes, later more, I noticed glimpses of calm. And when I started paying attention on purpose, in the present moment, non-judgmentally, that's what mindfulness is, to other things in my experience, it unlocked an awareness of so much more, like what was really going on in my inner world, my relationships with people, things, habits and behaviours, and my overall perception of the experience we call living. I actually had been exposed to meditation as a teenager, but because it was through my uh, incense-burning uncle who travelled to India and attended ashrams, I found it all a bit spooky. <laughs> now I wonder why it hadn't been taught to me during any of those career steps. I can now appreciate how mindfulness meditation as little as 20 minutes a day combined with journaling might have helped me examine the decisions at each of my career steps. It would certainly have helped me be less self-focused and more kind and compassionate than the person I became just before this big crash I had. And it might also have allowed me to appreciate what I now feel, that there is some sort of inner guidance and wisdom that we can tap into, some sort of spiritual force that can help us find meaning and purpose in our lives an inner wisdom that shows up in some of the emotions we feel, particularly the intense and the positive ones, those deep feelings of profound joy, rapture and bliss, that flow state when doing something we love. It may be our souls whispering to us. Now, I don't, I don't want to sound too woo-woo, but in retrospect, I can see how I missed some messages from that inner guidance. Steve Jobs gave a famous commencement address where he talked about how we can often only join the dots in retrospect. Bear with me as I join a few dots with you now. The first of these was that during high school, I became enthralled with, enthralled with taping things on audio devices. Using an old-fashioned cassette tape recorder and a microphone, I recorded songs from the radio and then added my voice over the top as a radio announcer. <laughs> I also started recording my own commentary on Australian rules football games. Hours would pass by as in an instant as I practiced being a professional broadcaster. During, uh, then I let it go. During medical school, I played in a band with a group of very amateur musicians, me on bass and synthesizer, and we played popular covers at the big parties that were held six or seven times a year at my residential college. The feeling I had when we were performing on stage was the first version of a flow state I ever felt. I loved being on stage in front of people. 
And when I was a very new intensivist, I got such a buzz out of leading a family meeting. It was scary, emotional, and hard to get the words right. But when I walked out, I often felt massive pride that I'd done something valuable. Even if the meeting was sad and we transitioned a patient to end of life care, I felt that deep humanity palpably in the family meeting room. Intubations and difficult line insertions were not as thrilling. So the dots join up only now. My love of audio, my love of being on stage and my pride in the human side of ICU all combined to now have me podcasting, speaking at events like this, and with the content of my work being the human side of intensive care. Even only 10 years ago, I would never have figured this to be my path. I was all about scientific research, evidence, and things that needed measurement. There is no way I would have given a talk on a soft skill topic. And imagine not even having slides. Talking about something on a podcast that didn't involve data would have also seemed like blasphemy. I took myself on a bit of a detour, but I've got to where I think I should be now. And I hope my example might help you to consider whether you might be missing a message or two from your inner guidance, as I did. What we are attracted to as children, and then when we are new at a craft, can be some of the fun things we forget when we start over-indexing on the opinions of others. What did you love as a child that you no, longer, you no longer do? What about intensive care that attracted you in the first place is starting to fall by the wayside as you follow the steps to get a consultant job somewhere? Only you know. But I hope you've heard my message that people pleasing is an understandable way to try and connect and belong, but it becomes pathological and that can turn into achievement, ambition, achievement addiction, burnout, mental illness and relationship breakdown. I nearly ruined my career. Some people ruin their lives. And although I haven't talked about it, modern life with its social media, smartphones and perfunctory instant messaging only adds to the risk of becoming a people pleaser. So I feel it's important today for me to ask you how you are judging the direction of your career. Have you reflected on your purpose? How do you and will you going forward judge success? Will it be measured by you or in the eyes of other people? And are you copying someone else or forging your own unique path? I found it hard to drop the opinions of others totally, but I'm much better at it. Maturity helps. Yet some of the hardest opinions to let go of are my old researcher colleagues who can't understand why I would wish to publish podcasts rather than papers. I came across an idea recently that has helped me. I've forgotten where I heard it, so I can't give due credit, and you may have heard of this one too. But essentially, it essentially goes that you need only to make two people proud in your life. 10-year-old you and 90-year-old you. The 10-year-old who wants to know what you did with all their dreams and aspirations. My 10-year-old is a lot happier than he was a decade ago. The 90-year-old you, who first wants to be here at all, but also wants to feel like you evolved as the years by, went by with whatever confronted you. No one else matters. You might think your parents, your partner, your ICU director and your children matter, but they probably care less than you think. Each of them is wrapped up in their own journey. It's hard to be perfect in any of this. You'll make mistakes, we all do. And thankfully we learn when the outcome is not what we expected. My invitation today is to see if you can tap into that inner guidance. If I'd followed the signs, I might have got where I am today faster and much more smoothly. You can do this through meditation, 
It works for me. But if meditation is too hard, at least do the deep thinking. Examine who you are. Reflect on the person you really want to be. What is your why? Write it out in a journal. Devoting time to this is worth every minute you give it, even if there seems not to be a moment to spare. Finally, as you negotiate the high stress, deeply emotional, pressure cooker environment of ICU, and sometimes life, please follow the things that bring you joy. Thank you for listening.